This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hi, I'm Dr. Kaiser Frank. Welcome back to the Sarah Digest. Today we're going to go over episode five on our stress and anxiety series. And we're going to talk about several of the things you can do at home, things that can help you deal with stress in a healthy manner. I'm going to kick it off today and I'm going to talk about exercise, everybody's favorite thing. Woohoo! So exercise can help relieve stress by reducing the body's stress hormones and stimulating the production of endorphins. These endorphins are the body's natural painkillers and mood elevators. Some simple exercises that may help you relieve stress include walking, jogging, or running. So speed determinant there. Swimming, cycling, dancing, boxing, yoga, strength training, climbing, playing tennis, or racquetball, or now the famous pickleball. I guess that's it. I'm done. No, just kidding. I mean, <laughs> get out and exercise. It helps. So let's go into why and, and how that helps there a little bit. So it's important to choose an activity you enjoy. If you don't enjoy it, you're probably not going to do it very often. So gentler forms of physical activity are great ways to start off, such as yoga or walking. They can help uh, reduce that stress hormone. So cortisol, so what is cortisol and what does it do? So cortisol has a vital job in the body. It's one of the stress hormones, and it's released as part of our fight or flight or our sympathetic nervous system kicks in when we're under stress or we're under attack or we have some anxiety that's kicking in. It shuts down less critical functions like reproduction and immunity to focus on fighting the immediate physical threat and breaks down tissues to provide energy necessary to achieve this. The functions of cortisol are supposed to be an immediate and short-lived response, enough to see off the physical damage and the return back to your parasympathetic state where you're more in a relaxed rest and digest phase. Back in the day, this was great for fighting off wild animals, but less than ideal for our modern lives where stress can be psychological and constant. So we'll talk a little bit more about mental stress and stuff that here a little bit later. So the positive role. So cortisol does have a positive role in your body. It gets a lot of slack and it's actually trying to protect you in a lot of ways. Cortisol is a vital physiological role. It raises plasma glucose levels. So it raises your blood sugar levels at a time of stress. Cortisol provides- to raise your cortisol there for a yeah. sec. <laughs> Cortisol provides the body with the energy it needs to face off the bodily attack like we talked about from wild animals or from other people. Illness or infection, it has a potent anti-inflammatory effect and eases ir irritation and pain. The <laughs> <laughs> negative effects are too much cortisol. So when you have cortisol at a super high level or you have it continuously for too long, you can have very serious and negative effects in the body. Your tissue will break down, re reducing protein synthesis and conversion of protein to glucose can decrease your musculature, increase your abdominal fat, and it's not an ideal result. It also suppresses levels of growth hormone and sex hormones, which can reduce your libido and fertility. It lessens glucose usage and increases blood levels, potentially predisposing to diabetes, and its effect on calcium can increase osteoporosis. So it is clear that moderating cortisol levels is important for maintaining our health and well-being. <clears throat> Exercise is perceived by the body as a form of stress in itself. It stimulates the release of cortisol. In general, for more of your fitness, in general, the more of your fitness improves, the better off your body becomes dealing with physical stress. This means the less cortisol that is released during exercise and also in response to emotional and psychological stresses. However, research shows that the time and intensity of exercise can affect the level of cortisol release. 
When it comes to exercise, more may not be better. Better. Training for more than 60 minutes, even at a low intensity, will burn up the body's glycogen stores and stimulate cortisol release. A study confirmed that long-term cortisol exposure was significantly higher in endurance athletes. Short, high-intensity exercises such as sprints, HIT, or weight training cause less of an increase in plasma cortisol concentrations. However, the level tends to surge if the rest periods are short in between these exercises and the work levels are high. This is particularly significant if exercising when starved of nutritionally depleted state and was also increased by training in the early morning when cortisol levels are naturally higher and the response to exercise can be more. So physical activity reduces stress, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. So here's some statistics and some stuff that you may find interesting. So stress is an inevitable part of life. Seven out of 10 adults in the United States say they experience stress or anxiety daily, and most say it interferes at least moderately with their lives. According to the most recent ADAA survey on stress and anxiety disorder, Nearly half reported that their stress had increased in the past year from 2007 to 2008. It's impossible to eliminate, but you can learn to manage stress, and most of us usually do. According to a recent ADAA poll online, 14% of the people make use of regular exercise to cope with stress. Others reported talking to family and friends at 18%, sleeping at 17%, watching movies and TV at 14%, as well as eating at 14%. And we're going to talk about some of these things today here. And listening to music at 13%. While all of these are well-known coping techniques, exercise may be the one most recognized by healthcare professionals. Among the ADAA poll, takers who exercise, a healthy percentage is already on the right track. Walking is at 29%, running at 20%, yoga at 11% are the preferred strategies. So exercising the body and mind. So the physical benefit of exercise, improving physical condition and fighting disease have long been established. We know that when stress goes up and your cortisol goes up for long periods of time, your immune system crashes. Mm -hmm. And we see that in a lot of our patients. Like, why am I always sick? Why am I always dealing with this? We got to get that under control. Sometimes it's dealing with certain things. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the next episode, but it's very important that we get that under control. So when stress affects the brain, it, with its many nerve connections to the rest of the body, feels the impact as well. So it stands to reason that if your body feels better, so does your mind. Exercise and other physical activities produce endorphins, chemicals in the brain that act as natural painkillers and improve the ability to sleep, which in turn reduces stress. Meditation, acupuncture, massage therapy, and even breathing deeply can cause your body to produce endorphins. And we're going to talk about breathing here in a little bit more. Conventional wisdom holds that a workout of low, moderate intensity makes you feel energized and healthy. Scientists have found that regular participation in aerobic exercise has been shown to decrease overall levels of tension, elevate and stabilize mood, improve sleep, improve self-esteem, and even five minutes of aerobic exercise can stimulate anti-anxiety effects. And Dr. Luke here is going to take over and talk about diet. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Kyson. You guys ready for this one? Bring it on. Let's go, big boy. Yeah. (laughs) So for you listeners, the best diet to decrease stress is going to be the one that is specific to your needs. Boom. Boom. You're welcome. Now on to Dr. Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. Kidding. A little... That is true, but there's more to it. So let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, The big thing uh, for me recently um, is I've been doing a lot of evaluating of the genome of a patient and their genetic variants. And so just to walk you through a few of those of how individualized this can get. uh, For instance, there's the HLA and KIAA gene, which evaluates a patient's ability to process gluten. And if they have the genetic variants that would predispose them to having like a potential gluten sensitivity or allergy like celiac. Uh, same for the MCM6 gene, which dictates whether or not a person has the genes or the variants in those genes to create lactase, which helps break down lactose, which is found in dairy. Another fascinating one is the HLA, DRA, and DQA2 gene, which looks at whether or not a person is more sensitive to mold and mycotoxins, as well as tubers or foods like carrots, potatoes, sweet potatoes, garlics, leeks, etc. 
And there are other genes to discuss, but the last one worth mentioning as far as diet goes is the POR and PON1 gene, which look at looks at the patient's ability to detoxify herbicides and pesticides, insecticides, etc. So if you're eating a lot of foods that have glyphosate or herbicides in them and you're having a problem detoxifying that, that can create some issues as well. So looking at the genome test as well as our energetic testing can provide a plethora of information to look at what foods work for the patient and what foods might not work. So you see, it's all about the individual and their specific needs, always. And you know, there's a lot of tribalism online and on social media. Go carnivore, go keto, kale's bad for you, so forth and so on. And again, those things might be true for an individual and what their needs and experiences are with those things, but you can't make gross overgeneralizations about food. This must be addressed as an N equals one or again, dealing with the individual person, what their needs are. And back to that point, without any any education, it can be truly daunting and overwhelming for people to try to navigate researching what works for them. And I don't know how many times I see on those divisive social media posts um, that make these wild claims, you see comments like, well, I feel like everything's bad for you, or what can we even eat then? And it's truly disheartening to see that. And within the context of this episode in this series, not to mention the stress and anxiety and potential eating disorders that this type of overwhelming and con conflicting information can drive people towards. So instead of bastardizing foods and saying all gluten is bad or all dairy is bad, again, we must take a nuanced approach to this and assess the individual and what their specific needs are and address it that way. And again, just picking on gluten and dairy here, like those types of foods aren't inherently evil. <laughs> they did nothing wrong, but they may not be the right fit or the right food for that person. So what's the best diet for you to minimize stress? I would say that first we must assess what foods are right for you, what foods we should, what foods would not agree with you and thus potentially harm you or cause an increase in inflammation and oxidative stress, and then create a plan that's <clears throat> specific to those needs. Aside from being evaluated professionally, you can always go the good old elimination diet route. If you think or are worried that you might have a food sensitivity, try it out, go prove it, cut out that food, that specific food for three to four weeks or so, and then reintroduce it into your diet and observe if you have any changes in symptoms. I think it's also worth mentioning, I think it's entirely possible, and I'm going to use this phrase, I try not to use it, but I think it's entirely possible to psych yourself out, so to speak, when it comes to worrying about or stressing over what types of foods that you can or can't have. In other words, I think a lot of the time it's our mindset is what dictates a physiological change or response and not necessarily the food in and of itself. Obviously, we know that food sensitivities and allergies are real, but I want to bring forth this study and giving credit where credit's due. I came upon this study brought forth by Dr. Brian Walsh and some coursework I'm doing. And this study is called Mind Over Milkshakes. And it evaluated whether um, physiological satiation, in other words, how satisfied you are after a meal, measured by ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, was affected based solely on your mindset. So in this study, there were 46 participants and they were all given the same 380 calorie milkshake under the false pretense that it was either a 620 decadent milkshake labeled indulge with a nutritional label on it and graphics of a yummy vanilla milkshake in a frozen glass, or they were given that same 380 calorie milkshake, only it was labeled census shake, which was like, marketed or labeled as a healthy protein shake, which listed only 140 calories. So again, the same 380 calorie shake given to all the participants, but had one label or the other. And then after that, the results were fascinating. In order to measure how satisfied or satiated after drinking the shake, the researchers uh, pulled blood and they measured the ghrelin levels of the participants. So the higher the ghrelin, the hungrier you are, and the lower the ghrelin, the more sa satiated or full you are. When drinking the uh, 380 calorie shake with the indulgent label, which again was like the milkshake, the yummy looking milkshake label, the average ghrelin levels in the participants drastically dropped, thus indicating that the participants truly felt satiated or full. Whereas the average ghrelin levels measured for the participants when they consumed the census shake demonstrated no significant change in the ghrelin levels, thus indicating they were not satiated or full in the slightest. So again, same milkshake, different labels, thus a different mindset, and it brought forth much different physiological change in results. Isn't that fascinating? 
It sure is. Their mindset produced an observable change through measuring a hormone. What else might be possible? Might we cause ourselves unnecessary stress or anxiety to a food that may not even be toxic to us in the first place? I think so. So, moral of the story. If you're experiencing stress and anxiety in your life, particularly when it comes to foods and wanting to know what to eat and what not to eat, I strongly recommend working with one of us doctors and to have that evaluated through the methods that I've just talked about. I would also say that this is especially true for individuals who truly are having a difficult time with this or truly feel like they can't eat anything because then we want to thoroughly evaluate why that is and what's the root cause or root causes of that dysfunction. But if not, and that's not necessarily you, then go ahead and like I said, experiment for yourself. Find out what works and what doesn't work for you. But the kicker is this, try not to let it rule over you and stress, to, stress you out to the point where you feel like you can't have anything. And cultivate some gratitude over your meals. I think personally, this is why as Christians, this is part of why we pray over our meals. And to quote one of my favorite comedians, Tim Hawkins, it's not like we're asking God to intervene and turn a Cheeto into a carrot as it enters into our body. But we are praying over our meals to cultivate gratitude and give thanks to God for providing food for ourselves and for our families and to not create unnecessary stress or anxiety over it, which can then, of course, lead to other issues. So, gratitude. Try it out. Are you done? Go, yeah. Okay. So, something I want to add to that is, um, especially when we're talking about the genome and things like that, in our next series we're going to do, we're going to go over genetics and epigenetics and methylation and all those fun uh, buzzwords that are out there now. But some people that we found that have issues or they have a potential issue with it, we find this exasperated sometimes by infections, which we'll go into in a lot more <clears throat> depth later on. But the infection itself, and I've had so many patients that have come in with gluten sensitivity. I mean, they eat it and they're just a wreck or a dairy or things like that, or even nuts. I've had kids with peanut allergies that, you know, genetically it shows some of the things that are there. But when we go through and we deal with the underlying issue of a parasite infection or something else in the gut that's creating these toxic things, we find that they can handle these foods again. And so while we need to correctly identify what your diet needs to be, and we go over that with you. What do you need to avoid? What do you need more of in your diet for the benefit of it? And then we go back and we say, well, what happens if we address these underlying issues? And we see that a lot of these allergies and sensitivities start to go away. So a lot of that cortisol and stress comes back from what they're actually uh, dealing with as far as infection or things like that. So it's pretty interesting. Even seeing how those the genome can be expressed differently or manipulated Bingo. by these mm -hmm. infections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was going to allude to that. I didn't want to steal too much of our own thunder going into that. But, you know, it's the saying that we all say, it's that your genetics load the gun, our thoughts aim the gun, and then the environment ultimately is what's going to pull the trigger. Right. So I want to add a couple more things to you, Dr. Luke. Uh, when we think about the food and the diet, right, there's also seasonal issues, yep. right, which means that we eat different foods at different times of the year, or at least we used to be able to. Now it's all the time. And then there's also stress effects that affect the dieting. So as you brought that out, so we will choose to lean to things that either calm us or soothe us mentally and or physiologically. And then eventually we can build up resistance to even those things and they no longer work or we want more as in the example the study you just gave, you know, that 380 calorie shake mentally didn't fix them. They needed another one, another one, you know? And so there's just multiple things that are in here and that's why it takes you know, some type of professional that knows what they're doing to break all that down and figure that out. But for those that are listening, it's also at different times of the year, you have different results. We typically see this, what, in the winter season, you know, all, all the holiday stress and all the food difference. People eat food that they only eat once a year and one or what happens, everybody gets sick come January, you know, so just another interesting aspect of all that. That was good. And we're going to address all that in the upcoming series. Yes, we yes, are. We will. Absolutely. I think the other thing that ties into it as well is um, asking yourself why you're consuming the food. Are you consuming it to nourish you or are you consuming it to comfort you? Because think about that also, your body's going to process those two things differently. That which we consume to nourish us, the body uses to nourish. That which we consume for comfort, the body doesn't break down, it just stores it. Guilty is charged because yeah. you either choose to eat to live or live to eat. Exactly. You know, and so many of us get in habitual routines and we just live to eat. And the, what's even more interesting is, is the average adult doesn't eat more than 30 types of foods in a given month. Well, take that on a step further too, is if you're eating to comfort yourself, you're basically saying, I can't deal with this stress. And so now you're just perpetuating the same problem. 
And the more yeah. you eat it, the more you perpetuate it. We'll Food is a drug? Yeah. Exactly. It's life. So we have the Food and Drug Administration. See, see. Yeah. Looking out for our well-being. Awesome. Yep. The floor is yours, Dr. Ben. Thanks, Dr. Luke. Today, I'm going to discuss breathing. So everybody stop. Take a deep breath. I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. And as well as how stress either affects the breathing or the breathing affects stress. So let's take a look at breathing without stress first so we can understand what happens to our breathing when we are dealing with stress. First of all, did you know that your lung function or the volume of breath that you have is a primary indicator of how long you will live? Hmm. Breath is life. There's no other element of health more important than the breath. If you doubt it, stop it for 10 minutes and see what happens. <laughs> as important as breath is to life, to health and to vitality. Most people don't know how to breathe effectively, especially when they're in a stressful situation. So what do we breathe? That becomes a key thing for us to think about. People go, you silly doctor, we breathe air. Yeah, well, what's in air? The atmospheric air that we breathe has 40 different substrates in it on planet Earth. And people think, well, I need oxygen to live. Mm, that's maybe only one fifth true. So there are five of those 40 substrates that are the most important. There are nitrogen, which is the number one uh, topic, or, I mean, number one substrate in air, then oxygen, then water vapors, then argon, and even carbon dioxide. And that counts about 99% of the composition of atmospheric air. So then what's breathing? Silly question, but think about this. Breathing is a continual movement that consists of two things. One, we breathe in, which is referred to as inspiration or inhalation which is one of the only four ways into the body. And then breathing out, which is referred to as expiration or exhalation, which is another one of the only four ways out of the body. So this breath alone affects 25% of the entirety of what comes in and what goes out and how your body handles it. And then respiration, which simply means to breathe again, right? Generally speaking, breathing is simply this, life in, death out, kind of simple. The normal respiration rate, um, whoops, I just went past that. The normal respiration for the average adult at rest is somewhere between 12 to 18 breaths per minute. This generally dependent upon five different types of breathing. So let's discuss those real quick. We have nasal breathing. And I don't mean this kind either. <laughs> nasal breathing is very shallow in and out. It's usually when you're sleeping and it'll constitute about 12 to 14 breaths per minute. Normal breathing, which is a slow frequency, almost imperceptible. When is the time? The, when did you actually stop and go? Oh, I just took a breath. I just took a breath. Right? There's no feelings or sensation at all while one is breathing at rest, and that's somewhere between 14 to 18 breaths per minute. Then we have our deep belly breathing. It's a deep diaphragmatic abdominal movement, and this is where the belly goes out further than the chest. Sometimes referred to as a catch-up or a cleansing breath. Then there's rapid breathing, which occurs when limited physical exertion, like going up or down stairs, carrying items, walking for long distance, as well as with anxiety and anxiousness and or stress, and that is 18 to 25 breaths per minute. And then there's heavy breathing, which some of you may hear us doing as we get close to the microphone. <laughs> heavy breathing occurs generally with excessive physical exertion, heavy exercising, and it can happen with excessive anxiety or anxiousness and or heavy emotional stress. And that breathing is 25 to 60 breaths per minute. So a continued respiration rate under 12 or over 25 breaths per minute while resting is considered abnormal. On average, a person with normal breathing takes in about 16 breaths per minute. This means we breathe about 960 breaths an hour, over 23,000 breaths a day, which is 8,049,602 times a year, just a little bit. And you don't even need to think about it. You don't even have to process it, right? So the normal to highly active level of respiration then, what does it do? It creates an oxygen demand. The oxygen, which is an acid, is needed so that cellular respiration, remember that's the in and out or the breathing again, can occur in every single cell and that then creates the carbon dioxide that is produced as a toxic waste that needs to be eliminated. That's why we said life in, death out. Carbon dioxide is generally made in where? The mitochondria of every single cell. 
that is one of the things oxygen and hydrogen is needed, which by the way, that's why we have water vapors in the air. We need that. This all has to be sent back either to the lungs or through the liver, which then sends out about 60% of all toxins to be expired out the lungs. If we do not eliminate this accumulation of toxins, then toxic waste begins to fill up the spaces inside our lungs, and that makes it harder to get oxygen in. We call that entrapment syndrome. That is why on the average, we will take four to eight deeper cleansing breaths or catch-up breaths per hour, and we don't even note it. We don't even notice it. This is where we breathe in short and breathe out long, and we all go, It's three to four times longer out than in. If we do not achieve the removal of the toxins, that is the beginning of internal stress on the lungs, and this can cascade, this cascade can cause even more stressful events. So what happens between the in and the out is what we consider to be incredibly significant. Here's a few more facts to consider. Did you know that the average person reached peak respiratory function in the mid-20s? We're all over the hill, guys. I'm the young one. And I'm the oldest one, too. I mean, then you begin to lose breathing capacity by 9 to 27% for every decade of life. So y'all should outbreathe me. <laughs> so what is going while your breathing slowly slips away? What's happening to you? Although anxiety may lead to shortness of breath, it's not the only cause. Sometimes it is the shortness of breath that actually causes the anxiety. Things like high blood pressure, low energy, weight gain or loss, stress management, sleep issues, speaking, singing, sports endurance, concentration, health, longevity, sex, and much more are aided or worsened by the way you breathe. But Dr. Frank was just talking about that on the exercise part of that. Now, shortness of breath can be frightening for those who have ever experienced it. And Dr. Caleb has mentioned this one several times about the asthmatic issue. In some cases, shortness of breath causes anxiety, while in others, the shortness of breath is caused by that anxiety. But many times, it's both. It's a catch-22 circumstance. When someone experiences shortness of breath relating to anxiety, it can be from a variety of reasons. Most often, it is because the body is going into the flight or fight response mode after a stressful or emotional event occurs. In this stress response, our brain sends signals to the rest of our body to prepare it to either fight or run. Such signals result in one's muscles tightening or constricting, including those located in the chest and the abdomen, which may make it harder to even take a deeper breath. During that time, our heart beats faster and our body breathes harder, creating a feedback loop mechanism that makes it difficult to catch our breath. This type of anxiety relates a related breathing and tends to be a result of what we call hyperventilation. Hyperventilation, also known as overbreathing, it occurs when your body is receiving too much oxygen and expelling too much carbon dioxide. Even though the body needs oxygen, healthy carbon dioxide levels are still important. As Dr. Lucas even referred to, blood-wise, we can check that and see where you're at, how that's actually processing for you. When you're taking in too much air, you're also letting out too much carbon dioxide. And we call that the bicarbonate or the CO2 rating. This can cause your body to feel like you're not breathing enough. And that disrupting the balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the body by over-breathing can lead to things like dizziness, tingling, headaches, in addition to a fast heart rate, an upset stomach, and emotional issues that are all leading to some level of fear. Anxiety hyperventilation is often caused by one of two issues. Breathing too fast, such as during an anxiety attack when your body's in the fight or flight mode. And that breathing too fast means the air you inhale isn't in your body long enough to be converted to CO2 or, or bicarbonate, carbon dioxide. While breathing out fast expels that whatever CO2 was still stored in your body. Then thinking about your breathing may cause you to take in more air than you actually need. This is what happens when people deal with heavy anxieties and panic attacks. These individuals are often concerned about their health, so they focus on their breathing and they try to consciously control it. We've all done that. It's like, okay, I'm getting nervous. I got to slow down my breathing. And that just kind of perpetuates, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Experienced that my whole life. We've all been there. <laughs> so ultimately, they try to take in too much air in order to feel their chest expand for a full breath. The body often doesn't actually need that much air and then shortness of breath incurs. Because of this, knowing if one's shortness of breath is from anxiety or something else really can be difficult to figure out. One sure sign is to learn to recognize your common triggers that have created the distress or the similar symptoms before. And if the shortness of breath immediately follows a stressful event, 
emotionally or with certain foods, as Dr. Luke was talking about, or with accumulation of foods, sometimes you ate too much sugar or you ate too much fat or you ate too much protein, it's a good idea that it's probably anxiety-related. Here's a general rule to keep in mind. Being able to come out of the difficult breathing episode within 10 to 20 minutes is also a good sign of it being an anxiety-induced condition as many other breathing-related physical conditions require medical interventions such as asthma or intrinsic or extrinsic asthma. Difficulty breathing in response to anxiety is common and usually improves when anxiety subsides. Breathing exercises can help reduce anxiety as well as many of the forms of relaxation. So when Dr. Kaisman was talking about all these different styles of exercise, breathing is critical. We talked about VO max, VO2 max, all these different things. We're going to provide a link uh, to the to the program here that covers the elimination breath and the cleansing breath techniques that we that we use. I also want to provide a link to a website that covers the top 10 breathing techniques for stress relief. So you can go through those processes and see which one works best for you, right? So if you want to incorporate that skill, you can find it out. And finally, the lungs are involved with at least three of the top kill, top 10 killers in North America. And guess what? Smoking affects every one of them. So if you do smoke, please do not use this poisonous habit as a way to relieve stress. We understand that tobacco use is difficult to overcome. Let's be honest. It has the same effect as cocaine and heroin. And it's not only the first aspect of smoking that is important, but it's also the second-hand effect on those around you, as well as the third-hand effect of smoke on the clothing, the drapes and curtains, the bedding, the linen, as well as furniture and carpets, and even inside your vehicles. So please, if you smoke, consider all the aspects of the dysfunctional health that it causes and get help to eradicate this killer from your life. And after that emotional plea, let's turn this over to Dr. Kaylor to discuss more information on emotions and stress. Thanks, Dr. Ben. <clears throat> so I want to say I definitely had some deja vu moments as you were talking about breathing techniques because, again, that was a key part of my childhood and even into my young adult years when I struggled a lot with asthma. There was definitely a lot of stress during my asthma attacks, and I would even say there was a compounding effect of several different forms of stress involved with that. Thankfully, I did know the right kind of breathing techniques, and that helped me calm things down and gain a little more control over my life. And that is essentially the goal of this episode as well. We want to provide those of you that are watching and listening ways to manage your stress on your own and maintain a little more control or composure in your life. So as I discussed in a previous episode in the series, emotional stress can be very confusing and surprising because so much of it stems from our subconscious. It can often rise up quickly, seemingly out of nowhere, and without any recognizable trigger or cause. It can toss you about like the waves of a stormy sea would toss around a small boat. Sometimes it's difficult to know how to respond to this stress because we don't know if it'll make things better or worse. You know, to continue with that analogy, we may be near the edge of a storm, and if we turn the right way, we can actually get out of the storm and find calmer conditions. However, if we turn the wrong way and go deeper into the storm, things could get much worse. And sometimes because there's so much confusion, because there's a lack of clarity and emotional stress is so chaotic within us, sometimes it seems like all we can do is just batten down the hatches and ride out the storm. Now, although we may not have any control over stormy weather at sea, we actually have a lot more control over the storms inside us than we think. So once again, I want to point out that it is usually not the presence of stress, but our response to it that causes the greater issues in our life. How we respond to stress, our coping styles, will often determine if that stress is good for us or bad for us. Yes, I did just say stress can be good for us. If that is surprising to you, make sure you tune in to our next episode where Dr. Ben will go in-depth on you stress or good stress. <clears throat> so, after that, I'll also talk about how we help our patients through that coping process and convert bad stress to good stress. But the focus of this episode is to talk about ways that you can manage stress on your own through self-care. So the goal of that is to eliminate, reduce, manage, or tolerate emotional stress so it doesn't take over your life. Now you're probably already familiar, 
with many common ways of dealing with emotional stress. I think we see this a lot in advertising or in TV shows or whatever. I think we've all seen the situation, especially in commercials, where a mom has all these rambunctious kids running around causing chaos and mischief. And then later it goes to her, you know, hiding out in a bubble bath with music playing, some candles going, some aromatherapy, all the stuff, and a glass of wine. She closed her eyes and lost in a mental vacation, right? <laughs> it's all about calming down uh, stress, recovering from that. <clears throat> so I could go on and on about very various specific activities and techniques as there are over 400 documented activities and strategies for coping with stress and the success of each method varies depending on the person because once again there is no one-size-fits-all approach to managing emotional stress um, but I don't want to go over all of those in detail if you guys want to bring up some and mention some of your favorite ones that might help you can, but what I really want to focus on is kind of narrowing down to the specific approaches or goals of dealing with stress or coping styles. So what I kind of see the most common is probably we try to avoid stress. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some other options as well, like altering, adapting, accepting, expressing, but avoid is probably one we see most often, and I think it's actually the most damaging one in the long run. Um, you know, we, we use uh, distractions, numbness, or things that numb us, or even delusion. We try to pretend that things aren't as bad as they are. We or try fantasy. to yeah, yeah, I mean, generate right. fantasies that things are you know much different than they are. And uh, I think this is the one that really leads us to the most issues and leads us to harmful coping strategies or maladaptive coping strategies that lead to much worse um, issues. I'll get to that more in a little bit. But again, the focus of avoidance is to try to escape from our stress or ignore our stress. Another approach is altering. So if we can alter the conditions that are causing our stress, we can reduce our overall stress levels. Simple ways to do this are to modify our schedule to provide opportunities for self-care like exercise, relax, or sleep. We can alter our diet and hydration to enhance our energy and sense of well-being. Sometimes our life just seems chaotic and altering our daily approach to have more structure and routine can reduce stress. Maybe your life is too repetitive and too structured and monotonous and sometimes shaking things up, doing something new can create more joy or excitement in life, which will decrease stress, make you feel more calm and relaxed and maybe even find more meaning. Um, another thing is if your living space is cluttered, you know, I was actually um, experienced this a little bit just recently in our house, you know. There have been many times where, you know, my wife would come in and be like, oh, we need to clean this. Or, you know, we'd get in the car. We need to clean the car. Or, we, you know, we come back and we need to, you know, clean out the garage and, you know, get some more organization in there. So once we actually got through some of these things, she felt a lot less stressed, a lot more at peace, more calm. And uh, that also led to me being more stress-free <laughs> and relaxed and calm. Ah, <laughs> oh, honeydew, honeydew. Yeah, yeah, get those done. <laughs> um. So another thing is sometimes we can't change or alter the conditions. Sometimes we just have to go through it, but we can adapt how we respond to that. So we can either change the way we think about a situation or look at how we can, um, you know, just find different ways to cope with it or to, you know, accept that we can't change that situation, but we can do other things that modify our reaction to that. So where I think uh, Dr. Craig's probably going to get more into some of that, um, both of this episode and the next episode. So accepting and expressing, these are both ways, you know, accepting feelings. Sometimes it's just trying to run away and hide from feelings. You know, if we just actually accept them, we identify them, say, I'm feeling this. Sometimes that's all we need to really just let it go and, you know, just kind of have that um, peace start to come in because we can actually decrease that chaos in our mind because a lot of times the it's we don't know what we're feeling or why we're feeling it that way. But if we can actually identify it, that relieve some of the stress of the unknown and then it allows us to actually start processing through those things and mm -hmm. um, gain more uh, understanding of what we're dealing with. 
And obviously expressing, you know, finding healthy ways to express emotions. You know, sometimes we have a lot of stress and anxiety, frustrations, angers, not necessarily healthy to express those directly in the moment to the people that might be involved in the situation. But if we can find some other healthy activities like exercise, so martial arts, you know, or boxing, ways to kind of release some tension without necessarily beating up the ones we love, that's always a good option too, right? <laughs> not not the cat or the dog either, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if those are ones you love, then the other included in that. So. <laughs> <laughs> if they bite you, then you may. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So. What I really want to spend a lot of time on is identifying unhealthy or maladaptive coping mechanisms because I think these are what we tend to fall into more. You know, we talked about emotional eating already. That's something that we use to provide comfort or to provide a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction in our life in different ways. Um, again, the avoidance or escapism methods, you know, disengagement, avoidance, Isolation from people, from people that bring joy into your life, um, emotional suppression, addictions is a big way that we are maladaptive, maladaptive coping leads to because if we're always trying to escape our stress and there's constantly more stress being added in because stress doesn't go away just because you ignore it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the turtle shell method, which I tried a lot in my lifetime. It really doesn't work that well. You know, you can't just hide in your shell and expect everything to just magically become better. It, it just doesn't happen. And usually it gets worse over time. It might pass for a season, but eventually it'll come back. And usually it has a lot more accompanying it and a lot more uh, consequences for trying to avoid it again. But we see this distraction um, method, you know, even not even so far as going to addictions, but going into just simple things like, reading books, watching TV or streaming movies, you know, getting into these things where we're always escaping into uh, something else that's not our reality. Again, when I was dealing with asthma as a child, I used this method a lot. I couldn't go outside and play a lot. So I read a lot of books. We didn't have video games for quite a while, but once those came around, I got really, you know, involved in those and I would even say addicted because it was a way for me to escape my reality and actually have a little bit of control over a fantasy experience that you know I could associate with my life. And so we look at all these things and it's not so much alcohol, drugs, and all these other things, although those are extreme versions and those are definitely addictions that have severe consequences, but even just a lot of other ways that we live our life, you know, if we're using our time, using things in our life to try to hide away from the stress instead of actually engaging with it and process through it, we're going to have a lot more issues. Mm -hmm. So maladaptive coping uh, processes also negatively affect your outcome. Even if you have, you're working with a therapist or professional, you're less likely to think that anything's going to change because it kind of puts you in a victim or survival mindset where you don't think anything can get better. You're just trying to survive. You're trying to get through it. And again, that doesn't really work out as well in the long run. And you're going to limit yourself what you're able to do, um, not only with your day, but with your life in the process. And also these type of coping methods are linked to higher rates of PTSD, severe anxiety, major depression, psychosomatic pain. So actually pains caused from mental or emotional stress, hypertension, heart disease, again, with smoking, that goes back to lung disease quite a bit and alcohol and drugs can cause a lot of liver disease issues. So instead of uh, relying on a lot of these maladaptive or, you know, these coping methods that are really not going to fix anything or really not going to address the issue or find ways to actually live through that. You're just trying to hide away from it. It's just going to cause more problems. Right. So some healthy alternatives, we, you know, Dr. Kaisen already mentioned quite a few of those in his, the opening segment, but listening to calming music, aromatherapy, rest or sleep, exercise, uh, again, expression is a very good way to, uh, you know, actually release mm -hmm. emotions that cause stress. Um, I remember, you know, my mom told me about how, you know, your mom, Grandma Bowers, would play the piano at night, you know, mm -hmm. after dealing with 13 kids. 
with a little bit of frustration and she'd be playing some hymns and she'd be starting off very aggressively (laughs) playing through those hymns. And then over time, you just kind of hear a little more mellowness and a little more calm go into her playing. And so she was able to release that into playing the piano, playing that music. And that was a healthy way for her to deal with that and not strangle all the kids. (laughs) (laughs) How well I remember those things, yes. So again, uh, martial arts or dancing, uh, journaling is another great option. I'm going to talk about that uh, in more detail in the next episode. Uh, One simple option is just unplugging, getting out into nature. You know, Mm -hmm. we have so many different things that cause us stress coming in from our notifications, from our alerts, from our emails, access to the news, and so much stuff just on our phones, comparison games on social media, all these different things that affect us and cause more stress and anxiety in our lives. If we just unplug from that, decrease the inflow of it, then that can actually reduce a lot of stress and help us be more emotionally stable. Um, We also talked uh, in our energy medicine series about how nature has a lot of healing and uplifting frequencies, especially in like flower gardens, the mountains, beaches, and so on and so forth. So meditation is a good way. Um, There are different forms of meditation. Some of them are focused more on clearing the mind. Others are focused on shifting focus from negatives to positive mentalities. Um, also activities that increase gratitude, joy, laughter, laughter is one of the best ways to relieve stress. I think that's why comedians have always been so successful and why everybody loved Robin Williams so much. Right. And it's hard, hard for stress and worry to coexist with laughter and joy within us. So overall improving overall health, uh, your overall health and sense of well-being. We already discussed exercise, healthy diet, breathing, again, uh, proper sleep and proper hydration, you know, not having enough sleep, not having enough water. Mm -hmm. These can cause physical stress in the body that leads to other forms of stress developing as well. And there are plenty of studies out there that correlate sleep and hydration to stress levels and overall sense of well-being. We also have a whole episode on hydration where we talked to Dr. Kelly Halderman. I highly encourage you to go back and look at that episode if you haven't already. But anyways, the kind of key statement or takeaway statement for this is find healthy ways to express or release emotional stress because that will be much better for you than trying to consistently escape or ignore your stress. Dr. Kelly, that brings up something I used to hear my father hear, or hear him say this a lot, but what you talked about, if, if we always do what we've always done, you always get what you always got. And one of the concepts of what stress initiates from, or in most people mentally, is what we call a values conflict. We didn't get or experience what we ho- hoped or thought we deserved or we should have got. And therefore, that brings anxiety and stress onto us. And if we can combine those two things, you know, I can't always do what I've always done, and go, wait a minute, and Dr. Craig's great at this. He helps me do this a lot. It's like, wait a minute, stop. Look at your words, look at your reactions, look at what's happening. Why is your body choosing to present that away? If we can do that, then we can change that. And that's something you can do at home. I mean, we can all just go, wait a minute, let's don't react the way I always react. Let me stop and reanalyze this and think about it. So it's great. Stress is a byproduct of the world not complying with our hopes, wishes, dreams, and desires. I heard somebody say that. That'll yeah. Kill you. That'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Craig, I'll let you tell us what you think as you dive into mental stress. Thanks, Dr. Caleb. Well, so far we've talked about how to manage and reduce our stress through physical things such as exercise, physiologic things such as breathing and diet, and even emotional coping methods like Dr. Caleb talked about. What I want to talk about, as has been said, is the mental aspect. Because I think not only can it help manage and reduce, but I think it can actually eliminate stress altogether. So, as I dive into this, I want to start with a verse in the Bible that says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Or how I like to say it is what you think and feel becomes real. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I've also heard it said that everything starts with a thought, and I agree. Because I think what we feel, or what we think, drives what we feel, drives what we believe, drives what we think, and the cycle perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates. And that's how belief comes, as you've said. Exactly. Right? So, I want to start, there's two things I want to give people to, that they can do on their own. First, it actually starts with awareness, which from my perspective is really just moving something from the unconscious to the subconscious to the conscious mind. 
Before I do that, though, I want to talk about why we lack awareness to begin with. I want to talk about how the brain actually works because the number one purpose of the brain or the number one objective of the brain is what? Keep you alive. Exactly. So what is the easiest way to keep you alive? Hmm. A lot of different ways to do that, but. If I keep everything the same. Right. Then you're going to stay alive because you've already been alive in what's the same. Right. In that commonality, right. Exactly. So if the brain can keep you in the same set of circumstances and you've survived it, then that's its whole goal. Yeah. And the, the way it does that is it drives what we've been doing consciously to the subconscious and then into the unconscious. Yeah. Right. We'll talk about more of that. But. Exactly. So what that, what that means is a couple of things. One is we're creatures of habit. We've all heard that. And we've all t- already talked about it can take up to 21 days to break a habit. Because why? Because it's not familiar. As you move into the, uh, the unfamiliar it becomes uncomfortable and the body goes, nope, we're going to go back into the comfort. Let me change one word there. It takes 21 days to start a new habit. Exactly. Not exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you can, you can go 21 days and still lose that habit. Yeah. Well, a lot of time research shows it takes 64 to 66 days to stop an old habit. Exactly. And two years to erase it. Right. So. Exactly. Well, and what, what I have found the most interesting too is if you want to change you're going to have to go through a period where your body is actually going to resist that change. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to actually go through a period where it's uncomfortable and your brain's going, no, we can't do this. I don't want to do this. Let's stop. Right. And if we don't pay attention, we'll just go back into old habits. Right. So as I said, I think the number one thing that can help from a mental perspective is awareness because it's very difficult, if not impossible to change what you're unaware of. So, there's two things that I use primarily that I think a person can do at home that would help in this process. The first is I like to ask what I call the what, where, why questions. And what I mean by that is this, what are you feeling? Where are you feeling it? And why are you feeling it? There really, from my perspective, are only three basic negative emotions. We've been talking about anxiety. Anxiety ultimately leads into sadness or depression or overwhelmed, which ultimately leads into anger. So, you're going to feel one of those three things. And the truth is you really feel all of them all the time. It's the real question is what's really the primary thing you're feeling. The level of degree of it, right? Exactly. So to me, anxiousness is a fear-based thought. Depression is an overwhelmed feeling and anger is a, uh, an aggressive response. Yeah. So that's the first question. Fear is going to create one of those as as well. Right. They ultimately always goes back to fear. And this is what I'm really driving towards in these questions is the what you're feeling is what state are you actually in? Are you in the fear state, the sad state, or the angry state? Mm -hmm. That gives you a clue as to how far in this am I and how much much work do I need to do to get out of it? Now, the second is where do you feel it? You're either going to feel it in your head, your chest, or your gut. To me, this gets into whether or not it's conscious, subconscious, or unconscious. Mm -hmm. We experience most of our consciousness in our head, though it can... We experience it other places too. Our subconscious, we tend to feel in our heart, which I think that's what emotions are, is a subconscious process. And then ultimately in our gut is our unconsciousness. Those are buried beliefs and, and truths. So think about this. When you've been in a situation where you felt really, really uncomfortable, where did you feel it? Probably your gut. Right. Because it gets down in the core aspect of our being. Now, if we're just kind of like me sitting here waiting to, for my turn, eh, I feel a little uneasiness in my chest going, okay, am I going to remember what I wanted to say? Am I going to forget? Uh, am I going to cover something somebody else says? You get into all that thing as well. But this is the first thing I always have people start with. So at home, remember what, where, why. Now, to me, the why is the most important question because the why is the thought that got you to the feeling that got you to the belief. What is that? What were you actually thinking that actually drove you to this feeling or anxious place? And it's funny if you'll actually take the time more often than not, it's just a little trigger. Now, the problem is that little trigger is connected to another trigger and another trigger and another trigger and another and another and another and another. And what you're starting to feel is this whole line of things. Dr. Luke said the environment pulls the trigger. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The question is, how sensitive is your trigger? Right. And why is it so sensitive? 
And this is my whole point of, I believe we can eliminate stress if we desensitize the trigger. Because ultimately, what was stress intended for? Fight or flight. True danger. Mm -hmm. Most of us are walking around like we're in danger when it's just mental, emotional thought processes that we have become so desensitized to or oversensitized to. Right. And, and, and like we talked about is if I'm, if I'm going to games or I'm going to books or I'm going to food to cope, each time I'm telling myself more and more, I can't deal with this. 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 Wow. And now we become less and less and less and less tolerant of everything. So that's part one. The second thing was already kind of mentioned is I like to call it wordplay. It's the, I should, I need to, I have to, I can't. All those words do what for you? Guilty. Yeah. Are they going to, yeah. Are they going to move you more into stress or more out of stress? Or does it reconfirm your belief as you it, just said, right? I do two things with the words. One is if you pay attention to the words you use, I can tell you what you believe because you'll verbalize it. Right. The second thing, it, it's, it's also a program. It's a projection into the future. I need to, are you going to feel anxious? Or are you going to feel unanxious about saying I need to? Right. Because what happens if you don't do it? Now you feel guilty. Now you feel bad. Yeah. I, if we pay attention to the words we use, it gives us both an indicator of what we, what we're experiencing or what we believe. And it's a projection of where we want to go. So, the other part, or the, the second thing to this, I said awareness was number one. Number two is the realization. If you can gain awareness, then you have the opportunity to realize, I don't have to keep doing this. Because what I think, here's the funny thing is, anxiety is ultimately a warning or a warning of danger that we're moving outside of, our, of the known and familiar. Right. It's a learned response, and we, we've learned to listen and still choose how to respond. Hang on, I want to rephrase that because I didn't come out how I want to. This anxiety is a learned response. And the problem is most of us allow the feeling to occur and then the response happens automatically. Instead of going, I feel anxious, now what do I want to do with it? Because I think really the biggest problem is not the anxiety itself. It's what we think and feel about the anxiety that's issue. I mean, think about this. If you've ever been anxious, then you can be anxious about being anxious. That's really the issue. It's, it's how we think about it that's the issue. It's interesting. I was reading a study where they actually talked about if you anticipate the stress, mm -hmm. right, you can overcome it because you'll prepare yourself for that stress. And it's the unexpected stress that gives you a bad reaction. But knowing that, you can preset yourself up, says, oh, well, if this happens, I'll react this way. Let me flip another yeah. thought process on that as well. Most of us are either living in the regret of the past Ooh, or the anxiety of the future. Yeah. Because in your present moment, whatever it is you're anxious about doesn't exist. Yeah. Wait a minute. This public speaking, it exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny is now that I'm talking, I'm, I'm less anxious yeah, because totally. I'm in the moment of it. Right. It's thinking about it ahead of time that's really the issue. And so if we right. will learn to stay in the present, I think there is a cartoon about that <laughs> what is it uh, yesterday is history and, to, and tomorrow's a mystery but today is a gift that's why they call it the present right if we will learn to stay here there's really no anxiety in the present moment because if there is true danger then we respond to the danger yep. but what we're talking about this anxiety is not because of a danger it's because we have thought a certain way this create a certain response that then we choose what to do with. So, point. as I said, we get stuck in this cycle. What I want to talk about is how do we break out of this cycle? So far, I've talked about awareness and realization. I'm going to talk about a couple other techniques um, in the next episode that we, we do a lot with in the office. But um, one of the things I will leave you with is one of my favorite ways to get awareness and realization is meditation. If you can sit quietly, and it takes time, and for some people it's really difficult yeah. because their mind is racing, but if you can actually get to this magical place where everything goes quiet, are you anxious? Well, for us doers, we, that creates more stress on some of us. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here. What I should be doing something. I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting time. Yeah. 
And we how like. Did, how did you describe that? Yeah, I yeah, should could, right. be. See now, what I like to—I didn't mention these. What I like to do is flip those words. Should I like to flip to could? Right. You could be doing something. Right. Is that what you want to do? No, I'm supposed to meditate. <laughs> supposed to. No. I'm supposed to, right? <laughs> no, you could meditate if you want to. Oh, there he goes. Yeah. Exactly. So I've got I, a book list for I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. I don't then, want to deal with it. Then don't. But so are you, you just evading or escaping then? it? Yeah. <laughs> I, the, the, here's the whole thing is the whole purpose of, of awareness is if you can get to awareness, it's a conscious choice. Bingo. And I think in our true consciousness, who would want to be anxious? I, I agree. I mean, I, my whole concept is everybody, that, nobody wakes up in the, in the morning and says, I'm going to have a very stressful day. Exactly. I they, think some of that's a mechanism, though, to get us to drive to do things, to get things done. I think part of that is is we have such an energy deficit in some ways or dysfunction in the body that to drive us to be able to get something done, we have to stress ourselves out about it. See, Look, I not, stress, no, 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 stress moves people. This is a mechanism for right. to get things done. Well, I have to do this. I have to get this done. Right. All these things have to get done today. They're required of me to be able to survive. Right. But I don't have the energy to do it. And right. so what they do is they stress themselves out to the point where they kick into a fight or flight state. They burn through that sugar. Now they're on sugar rush all day long. They have to constantly keep feeding that for because exactly. they're trying to get things done that needs to be done for their survival or their benefit, or the future of the family, kids, whatever it is, all these stressors that are on them. And so to do that, they have to get into that anxiety state. Right. They use that as a, as a tool or I'll yeah. like say a weapon to beat themselves into submission. And then yeah. come back from even maldigestion issues. We're not creating enough energy on our own. Our yeah. hormones are out of balance in other ways. And so we just perpetually do that. And this is where we find a lot of people get into this loop and they, the anxiety, the stress, the sugars, and this is where a lot of diabetes comes in. And a lot of these other things start to develop is because of this continual pattern because naturally they just don't get enough sleep. They don't rest well. They don't wake up the energy. They don't have mm -hmm. the ability to get through the day outside of actually causing stress themselves. Right. In the end, they pay a price for it. Too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, we're going to talk well, about and, that. <laughs> and I was talking to somebody today about this. I think you could boil all of this down into one very simple concept. In every moment of every day, your brain is saying one of two things. I can or I can't. The moment you say that your brain says I can't, what else can you do but go into fight or flight? Right. That's it. That was probably the dirtiest word in my house for my kids growing up. I, and there's a lot of four-letter words out there mm -hmm. that are bad, but can't is the one that would get my dander up more than anything else. Right. That is a self-limiting belief. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I got my kids' right. t-shirts made that said we're can-do kids, based on Philippians 4.13, right. because I didn't like the word can't. That's right. Uh, it, it's, it is the word that destroys our world. Yeah. It limits ourselves. We're basically saying I am not capable of doing things, and go. so you start shutting down your body's ability to be able to proceed and grow and do other things well, as right. we talked about when we first got here today you also limit the power of god the creator of the universe yeah. that in endowed and dude what's the word imbued imbued a few different words yeah i know yeah. endowed and imbued endowed and, and imbued you with his creative power and all these different powers i don't i think there's like 40 some different powers talked about in the scripture but and you're saying you can't because what I, this is powerful you're buying into a belief system somebody right. else is forcing upon you bingo or that you you've as Dr. Craig says, you've cycled yourself into your own belief of that. Yeah. Well, but that's coming from somewhere else too, though. True. I mean, you didn't do it to yourself. You mm -hmm. let somebody else convince you that environment. with false belief, teachings or false philosophy or something else that you've bought into, right. and then you start believing it about yourself. So a couple things I want to add to Are you done? Right, go ahead. I have another so thought. I, to, go ahead. I just want to – a couple things you touched on here. So one of the things is all these emotions come back to fear. So I find it in the Scripture interesting that Whenever God sends a messenger, an angel shows up, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. Do not fear. They are telling them this is not something to be afraid of. Right. So when the creator of heaven and earth comes to you with a message and says, do not be afraid, he's trying to tell you that fear should no longer be part of what's going on. Right. The other side of it is, why are we worrying about tomorrow when God takes care of the birds of the field? He dresses right. the flowers. He does all these things and takes care of it. We are worth so much more than that. To right. him and so right. those are such encouraging things in the scriptures that that help us to look at life a little bit differently and that's why i think it's so important to understand what our creator has for us and what he's trying to tell us in that and the life that we live should be empowered mm -hmm. absolutely so. well i think about what you said too if you worry about the future 
when has it ever turned out the way you worried it was going to? One <laughs> percent of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it never ends up the way you think it's going to go. So right. why are we even? Uh, here's one of my favorite examples. Have you guys ever had a a conversation in your head with somebody before you had the conversation? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that's one of the things I have worked to eliminate because it never goes the way you think it's going to go. Right. And when I find myself starting, I'm like, stop. It, it, Don't go there. Right. Exactly. It, it's pointless. Right. So, okay. Well, we're going to wrap up today's episode and join us next time for episode six. We're actually going to talk about what we can do within our office to help expand upon what we've already talked about that you can do with it for yourself. So we look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.